0: Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of Freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Syrian and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They then secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. All those who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To which he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, leave your country and people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he, left the ha- so he left the land of Chaldean and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days later after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in tombs that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor, at Shechem for for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdoms of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, are you brothers? Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was evil-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, "Who Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in flames, in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This was the same Moses they had rejected in the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was at the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in it, reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what was written in the books of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Malek and the stars of Refan, the idols you were made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the patterns he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joseph or Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in a house made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, said the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of San, the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their eyes and yelled at the top of their voices, They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witness laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged out both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever it went, wherever they went. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks very much, Farina, for reading the passage to us. Please do keep it open there on page 1098 as we continue our series in the book of Acts. Now, it's a very sobering passage, um, what we've just heard read out. This is the church's first martyr. Here is Stephen, a follower of Jesus, who is murdered. He is stoned for no other reason than he has faith in Jesus Christ. It's sobering if you're reading this for the first time. We've already seen persecution in the book of Acts. A couple of times, we've seen people imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen uh, people punished for their faith in Jesus Christ, but nothing as severe as this. And the people here are described as gnashing their teeth at Stephen. There is a fury in their hearts as they pick up these stones to murder someone who just wants to share good news about Jesus Christ, and yet they treat him in this incredibly evil And wicked way and it might be if you're coming to this for the first time or maybe for the 10th time or more you might think "Well, why is that why such hostility why would you treat another human being like this it is so barbaric now you might say to yourself well that's because people were much more barbaric back then and more savage and we're more enlightened now and we've moved on from these times Or have we? According to a recent uh, Open Doors report, 3,066 Christians were martyred around the world last year in 2017 alone. And that is just the ones we know about for sure. Thousands of Christians being martyred around the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. That is eight Christians, on average, being murdered every day. And the number could be much higher. This passage is just as relevant for us today, the church today, as it was for the church back then. Now, at this point, you might say, yeah, well, it's different for us here in the UK because we're a liberal country, we have freedom of religion... No one's being martyred for their faith here. And that is true. But just because people aren't being martyred doesn't mean people aren't being persecuted. Listen to these words from Dr. Taj Haji, religious commentator. This is back in 2010. Christianity is under siege in this country Britain's national religion has never been so marginalised and derided by the public institutions that should be defending it. A new form of virulent secularism is sweeping through society and its target is Christianity. Now he's not a Christian by the way, not a Christian, and he's a Muslim cleric, so there's no bias going on here from him. Um, no, it's true, there are, there are no Christian martyrs today, but Christians are still being marginalised. And it could be that for some here, you are coming here today to church and you are feeling very acutely some of that marginalisation. Be it at home from, from family members, and being at work from colleagues on a sports team, if you're the only Christian there. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, what is going on? Why is this happening? Has something gone wrong? What is God doing? You and I need answers for this as we're following Jesus. How are we to respond? And this passage gives us these answers. So come with me to the passage now. Three things for us to see about persecution. First, the expectation of it. Secondly, the reason for it. Thirdly, the encouragement in it. Okay, first, the expectation of persecution. I said at the start that this is not the first time we've seen persecution in the book of Acts. chapter four, chapter five, now chapter six and seven. This is a repeated theme, the expectation of persecution. What is new and what is significant about this particular section with Stephen is the way the author Luke seems to highlight Stephen's innocence and blamelessness, and he's still persecuted. So just look down at verse 8, page 1098. And we are introduced to Stephen as a man full of God's grace and power. And then if you glance down to verse 15, we read that he has a face like the face of an angel. Here is a man who has done nothing wrong, and yet still he is persecuted in this horrific way. Now, why is this important to us? It's important for many reasons, but mostly... (laughs) so that we are not surprised if a similar thing happens to us today. It's not being martyred at this point, it's just facing opposition. Surely if we just are Christians who are loving and we're doing good for society and if we speak about Jesus, we do it in a gracious way and a winsome way, well, no harm's going to come to us. Sure, people might reject the message, they're not going to reject us. Except that wasn't the case with Stephen. Stephen is full of grace. Stephen is performing great wonders and signs among the people. He's doing a wonderful good for society. But, verse 9, opposition still arose. Do you ever think if only I could explain the Christian message just really articulately with this great apologetic and a great defence of the Christian faith? I mean, it's good news, right? So if I can just put it across really clearly, then people will believe, they'll accept it not for Stephen. In verse 10, we are told that he is speaking here with the very wisdom of the Holy Spirit himself and his opponents could not stand up against the wisdom. And did they believe as a result? No, they did not. And the opposition continued. But we're in a free country Religious freedoms, there are laws, there are principles of equity, justice. Things will never get that bad. But they did for Stephen, verse 12. They stirred up the people against him. They brought him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts. They produced false witness, straight up lies about him and this perversion of justice. It can happen. But you say we're miles away from this right now. These things don't happen in this country anymore. You just have to look at the Martyrs' Memorial over there to remember what happened several hundred years ago to Christians for their faith in Jesus Christ. We're miles away from this. And yes, in one sense we are, and praise the Lord for that. And I hope we're all very thankful for the freedoms we enjoy in this country. But notice Stephen does not get martyred straight away, there is an opposition that is unprovoked. There is this argument that is irrational. Political action that is unjust. You don't think we're experiencing those sort of things already in this country? The derision of Christians by the media, the marginalisation of the church by public institutions, Christian street preachers, Christian bakers being sent to court. You and I, we need right expectations of the Christian life. And I wonder how many of us here, in this country, include persecution as part of that expectation. Even if it's a much milder form of the persecution we hear about in other countries around the world. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, if you want the reference, it's 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, says this. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me say that again. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not necessarily, not necessarily martyred, but definitely persecuted. Everyone, not one, not some, not a few, in certain parts of the country, in certain parts of the world, every Christian in every part of the world will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, will be And I wonder, do we see this and do we get this and do we realise it? And does this match up to our own expectation for the Christian life? If you are someone here looking into Christian things and you've been told, well, become a Christian, God's just going to give you what you want. Unless what you want has got persecution included in it, you are going to be in for a shock. But you say, I thought Christianity was good news. It's relationship with God, isn't it? It's fullness of life now. Yes, it is. There is nothing better than being a follower of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, God's spirit with you every day of your life, part of his church for eternity. There is nothing better, but it includes persecution now. Is that part of your own understanding and expectation ...of the Christian life? Do you expect it? So you're not surprised by it. But I was so clear in my explanation of the Gospel... ...and the Lord enabled me to be so gracious with my response... ...that it just felt like the Holy Spirit was giving me just the words... ...and yet they still responded like that. What did I do wrong? You did nothing wrong. If you are faithful... If you are godly, Stephen, my goodness, he was full of grace and full of wisdom. Imagine his message and his manner, faultless. And he is still treated like this. But you know, I've been a Christian a while. I've never been mocked for my faith. I've never been derided, never been marginalised. I don't know what you're talking about at all. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The only reason for not being persecuted is you are not being godly. Are you speaking up for Jesus Christ? Are you living for him? Do people know you're a Christian? You will soon know what is being talked about here. That's the first thing to see, the expectation of persecution. Let's move on secondly to the reason for it. Um, In verses 1 to 50 of chapter 7, Stephen responds to these charges of blasphemy. And he responds to these charges of blasphemy by retelling the history of Israel to show that he's not saying anything contrary to what has come before. But what's interesting about his retelling is as he does it, um, he underlines and highlights and demonstrates this hardness of heart in the people of God and leading to persecution that uh, carries on right up to the present day. Let me just show you, for example, in the time of the patriarchs, So this is the first era of God's people in verse 9, we're page 1099. um, In verse 9, we read that the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, jealous that God was working through him, and so they sold him as a slave into Egypt. They persecuted him from this hardness of heart, this jealousy towards the plans and purposes of God. Then we see it again in the era of Moses with the Israelites, verse 27, who made you ruler and judge over us this man says about Moses. And if you glance over the page to verse 35, we read this is the same Moses. They had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. Verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt you see this hardness of heart in the israelites turning from god turning back to egypt not wanting god to rule over them now glance across to this verses 51 to 53 because this is when stephen brings his speech to a close and as he does he applies it to his hearers and starts to accuse them in the sanhedrin okay this is strong words coming up you stiff-necked people Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So what is the reason for this? Persecution that we see throughout the history of the people of God against the prophets, against Jesus himself, and now against Stephen, a follower of Jesus Christ. It is the hardness of the human heart towards God. The hardness of the human heart towards God. This instinctive, by nature, feeling that each of us have, which says, look, none of us wants God to be God in our lives and we will push as hard as possible to keep it that way and go to any lengths for it. The professor of philosophy and law at New York University, Thomas Nagel, famous atheist, once put it very honestly in his book, The Last Word. He said this, "'I want atheism to be true, "'and I am made uneasy by the fact "'that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know "'are religious believers.'" It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, isn't that just very honest? Here is a famous atheist who is saying in this public book that at the heart of his atheism is not a rational belief, but a hope and a desire that God is not there. Because if God is there, then God is God and he is not. And he has the right as the creator of the world and the creator of us to tell us how to live our lives and we are morally accountable to him. And we don't want a universe like that. We don't want a universe where there's a creator telling us what is right and wrong about gender and identity and marriage, and human sexuality, and about how we use our time, and our money, and our relationships. We don't want a universe like that. We want a universe where we're in control, where we're in charge, where we can do what we like, when we like, how we like. And when anything comes in as a threat to that, my goodness, we fiercely protect it, we push against it, and the more that is pushing in, the more we are pushing back. That is where the strength of this reaction comes from. Even to the point of murdering someone for it. How dare you say I am not good enough for God? How dare you say that I am a sinner, that I face judgment, that I need a saviour? The gospel of grace is very offensive to human pride, and that's probably what's going on here with the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, the teachers who had the law, who thought they were okay with God, and here is Stephen saying, you've got the law, you don't even obey the law. And they're furious. I can't believe that you still think that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. I can't believe that you think that in this day and age. It doesn't matter how graciously you put it, how winsomely, how apologetically. It doesn't matter that this view that you are putting forward is a view that has been accepted for thousands of years (laughs) across the world. The moment you say you believe what Jesus teaches about marriage, the reaction can be so strong. It just kicks off. There is this uproar. Where does that come from? It is the hardness of the human heart that doesn't want Jesus to be in control. For Jesus to say, this is right, this is wrong. Even though Jesus knows best and even though this is best for everyone. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? It is my time. It is my money. It is my body who made you ruler and judge? Well, of course, we haven't, and no one has. But Jesus is the ruler and judge. But it is still a threat to our independence. We think it is a threat to our freedom. And so we push back, and we fight it, and we have this strong reaction to it. And the thing is, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral sitting on the fence. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all. And so it's all of Jesus or none of Jesus. Jesus. And that's why you're getting this pushing, this strength, this strong reaction to ultimately silence Jesus and to silence the witness of the church and to silence you in whichever field of life you're operating in. That is the reason for the persecution. Be aware of it when it comes. So you can continue to speak up for Jesus, the very meaning of life and the one that everyone has to hear of and believe in thirdly and finally let's move on to the encouragement in persecution because don't we need some encouragement with these verses and in the midst of persecution have a look at verse 54 when the members of the sanhedrin heard this they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. One of the things that makes persecution so difficult, and obviously the more severe the form of persecution across the world, the harder it is is to think that God is still there and that God is in control, that God loves you, that he hasn't abandoned you. And look what Stephen gets here, he gets a vision of the Father and the Son in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This incredible nearness of God and experience of him. So much so, look at the words he says when they actually pick up stones to stone him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that remind you of as he is dying on the cross for your and my sin. Such a vision of the Lord, such a nearness of him. This grace, this forgiveness, this trust in the Lord because he is there with him. It's amazing when you read... (sighs) Christians in in past years or in other parts of the country who have suffered so severely and persecuted so much and they talk about this nearness of the Lord, admits it, they don't like the persecution, they don't want the persecution, but this experience of the Lord and they wouldn't trade it for anything else. He is with us. And look, whatever we're facing here, and it's not going to be this martyrdom right in this country, but any opposition you face and you feel you're alone at home or you feel you're alone in the office as the only Christian or the only Christian on the sports team, and you feel the pressure to keep quiet and you don't know what to say, remember that Jesus is with you in that moment. You are never alone. We don't have to turn to it now, but back in Luke chapter 12, Luke's Gospel, the Luke who wrote Acts, he says about how Jesus prepared his disciples precisely for this moment. When you are brought, he says, before synagogues, rulers and authorities, just like here. Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Jesus is completely in control. He knows what's going on. He warned his disciples about him, said it was going to happen and is with them right now giving them the word and he will do it for you too. Be encouraged in the midst of persecution. The second, <clears throat> another encouragement here in these verses is the way the Lord uses the persecution to advance his gospel. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we read, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church. So Stephen is martyred, but there's a great persecution across the church. And then we are told that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then if you glance down to verse 4, we are told, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And the next stage in God's mission plan begins. You remember all the way back in chapter one, verse eight, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is the second stage. Don't get me wrong, persecution in itself is an evil, wicked, terrible thing. But such is God's sovereignty that he can use it for the spread of the gospel and the advance of his kingdom. An evangelical leader was sharing with me once about his experience at a Lausanne conference. And they were in a prayer meeting, praying for the persecuted church in Africa. And this English evangelical minister started praying and prayed for the persecution in that country to stop. At this moment, now the African leader from that country interrupts his prayer. and said, I'm sorry to do this. I need to ask you to stop that prayer and please don't pray that for us. Since this persecution has begun, Christians are being galvanised afresh for the gospel. We are united again in mission. We are clinging less to the idols of this world. And the church in this country is growing don't pray that for us. You know what we pray for you? We pray for more persecution to come in the UK so the advance of the Gospel can happen here. Now look, I don't know what you make of that. And I don't know what your reaction is to that sort of perspective on persecution. But are we beginning to see this in a new light? That where naturally we are shocked by persecution, we don't understand persecution, we want to avoid persecution at all costs. Here is God speaking to us through his word saying expect persecution, here's the reason for it and here is a great encouragement when it happens, I am with you and I'll use it to advance the gospel so don't give up. Keep going, keep speaking of Jesus no matter the pressure you face. When it comes, don't be surprised by it. You know the reason for it, the hardness of the human heart, but keep holding out Jesus. He is life for these people. Do not let the marginalisation of Christianity in this country silence your personal witness in Jesus Christ. He has given us this mission. Let's continue in it. That is the prayer. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you very much for this sobering passage about Stephen. Thank you for his grace, his wisdom, full of the spirit, full of power, and yet treated in this horrific way. Thank you for what it shows us about the reality of persecution in the Christian life. Sorry, Lord, when we are surprised by it or try and avoid it at all costs. Thank you for explaining to us the reason for it, the hardness of the human heart. And we know something of that in our own heart there, but the grace of God, there go I. And thank you too for this great encouragement amidst persecution that you are always with your church, always with us, even if we feel humanly, alone you will give us the words to say you will continue to spread your gospel you have given us that mission so embolden us today and this week to speak up for Jesus in gentle gracious winsome ways with our friends with our neighbors with our colleagues we ask and draw people to him we ask all this in Jesus name amen